Well, good evening. If you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be at the end of Matthew 24 before I pray, and then uh, we'll be in a number of passages tonight. But uh, I'm going to read from Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you because you have given us life through your Son, Jesus. And as we just sang, we want to adore you and praise you, give you all of the glory. Uh, We do pray that Jesus would come quickly and that you would establish your will on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray for those of us who are here now that we would live our lives in light of eternity. I pray if there are any in here this evening even who don't know you yet through Jesus, that they would understand the truth and come to know you. Father, I pray as we study your word that you would help us with our minds to understand it, empower us through your spirit to obey. And Father, move in our hearts to remove our doubts and distractions and fears. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the future, many, if not most of you, will one day get engaged and one day get married, and uh, it's a great time in your life. But for the gentlemen in here in particular, I want to say this. When you get engaged, you will enter into a season of your life filled with more intensive planning than anything you have ever experienced. Imagine all of the things you've planned for in your life all put together, multiply it by like infinity and compress it into three months or six months or a year. And that's engagement. There's an intense period of preparation and planning and thinking about uh, what dresses are going to be and what flowers are going to look like and what receptions are going to be and all of these things. And uh, this is typical in our culture. In fact, I was looking this past week at some statistics. The wedding industry in the United States is a $40 billion industry. The average couple spends about $24,000 on the wedding and reception. It's a figure that uh, makes me want to have a heart attack because I have two daughters of my own. It scares me to death. Average engagement length is a year and a half. And so uh, people spend a long time thinking about that day. Uh, We have some of our interns on staff that have recently gotten married. And so I asked if any of them had any leftover wedding magazines. And so uh, one of them was kind enough to loan me this. This is one wedding magazine. And uh, as you can see, this thing is huge. All right, it is 484 pages long. I've rarely read a book 
as long as this. Uh, I could knock you unconscious with the weight of this. This morning, I brought it over here, and it was in my computer bag, and I really thought I was going to crack a vertebrae. It is about 10 pounds, okay? As you look in it, it has 865-plus wedding dresses from which to choose, right? I don't know how there could even be that many styles of a white dress, but there are 865, 50 hottest honeymoon spots uh, inside the royal wedding, in case you want to do your own in the same way, and a, a number of different things like that. This is enormous, and as you flip through it, actually about 80% of it is different ads for wedding dresses. That's about what the magazine consists of. This is one bridal magazine, one issue out of the dozens that are out there. So people spend a lot of time and effort preparing for that one day. Listen as I drop this, you'll see how uh, heavy that thing is, okay? People spend a lot of time preparing for this event. And uh, I think it's interesting because it's a day, and it's a great day, but it's a day that really it's going to come and then it's going to go, right? Uh, You're going to have this day, you're going to have memories from this day, but it's going to be gone. And I thought, you know, they really should have magazines that big that come out all the time about how to have a good marriage, how to look beyond that day and be a good husband or a good wife. There aren't as many that I'm aware of, if any. But as I thought about all the preparation that goes into that day, I couldn't help but think about uh, the topic we've been talking about this semester, which is heaven and hell. And I thought, how many of us spend the kind of time and energy and effort planning for eternity as we will planning for this one day where we get married? How many of us think about eternity with that kind of anticipation and seriousness? How many of us spend the kind of time and money and resources on eternity as we do on this? If I am honest, the reality is that many days, if not most days, I'm distracted. There is a lot of other stuff that captures my attention besides the reality of heaven, Uh, besides the reality that one day Jesus will return And those that know him will be a part of his kingdom. And those that know him will be evaluated. Our lives will be evaluated. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our lives will be evaluated. And as you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about rewards that are given to those who are faithful. He talks about the opportunity to reign alongside him for those who are qualified to be his representatives. Now, it's clear that entering into his kingdom is a matter of simply trusting in Jesus Christ. But the reality is, even if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you know that you're going to heaven, it's not like you just sit back and you say, I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm going to rest and just wait for that to happen. Instead, the scripture constantly calls us to an active pursuit of Christ-likeness so that we can be men and women who are qualified to be representatives of God in his kingdom. And that's the perspective of the New Testament. By the way, as you read through the New Testament, You consistently see the apostles who wrote it calling the church to be faithful, to stay pure, to stay focused, to be holy, to become like Jesus. And the motivation they often give is something like this. The Lord is near. He's standing at the door. The day of judgment is almost upon you. And so are you living in anticipation of that day? So as we kind of wrap up this series tonight. We'll talk a little bit about it next week, but uh, for the most part, we're wrapping it up tonight. And as we've talked about heaven and hell, uh, one thing we've seen throughout the course of the semester is that heaven and hell are real places. And if they are real places, 
And how do we live in light of that? And how do we live in light of the fact that Jesus is one day going to return or you and I are one day going to meet him? Could happen tonight. How do we live and prepare for eternity? A few thoughts from the scripture that we're going to talk about. First of all, look at Matthew chapter 25. Just a few verses down from where we began tonight. Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to start in verse 1. Jesus tells a parable in the context of talking about when his kingdom is going to come, what his kingdom is going to look like, he tells this parable. Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. All right, Jesus tells this parable to illustrate that at his return, what will matter is being prepared for him to come. And it seems in the context that there are some who get into the kingdom and some who do not. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But the the idea is that based upon how a person responds to Jesus' message, they either enter in or or they don't. There's only one thing that's going to really matter to people on that day, and it is, are you prepared for his coming? Several years ago, my older brother and I took a driving trip around the country uh, when we were in college, and I found that my brother and I traveled differently. I like to be prepared. I like to reserve hotel rooms, know we're, we're going to sleep for several days, coming up. Uh, My brother, Dan, is not like that at all. He kind of likes to fly by the seat of his pants. And so uh, we would just pull up to hotels. And if there wasn't room, we'd sleep in the car. And this was kind of the way that he managed things. And uh, one night we got into the city of Boston and uh, drove in and we waited until really late to get a hotel room. And there were none. There was a Dave Matthews concert in town and all these conferences and everything. And so uh, we got to the first hotel about midnight and uh, they were full. Drove to the next one, they were full. The next one, they were full. I drove around for four hours trying to find us a place to stay. Every door was closed to us until finally about four in the morning, somebody took mercy on us and found us a hotel room. But the thing that struck me then and and that I remember now is this. All that mattered when we walked into those hotels was, do you have a reservation? They didn't care how tired I was. They didn't care how long I'd been driving around. They didn't care how sincere I was, Uh, even if I had cried, I don't think it would have mattered. They were full. We hadn't prepared. And that seems to be the idea of this parable that Jesus is talking about, that he tells. The setting is a wedding in the ancient Near East. Weddings in the ancient Near East, just to give you a little bit of background, they weren't quite like they were today. You wouldn't set a date, prepare a church, and then a year and a half or a year or six months out, uh, start getting everything ready. Instead, the bride and the groom would be betrothed, they'd be engaged, and the groom would go and he would get his affairs in order. He would prepare a home for them, uh, he would get things ready, and then 
on a particular day, she may or may not be warned in advance, the groom would come and he would claim her and he would take her back to his house. And while they went back to the house, there was a bridal procession and music and light and rejoicing while they went back to the groom's house. And so the groom comes and uh, it seems like there's been some kind of advance warning because there's these 10 bridesmaids and they've been told the groom is going to come, get ready. So five of them, they get their torches, which were really uh, not necessarily lamps like we think of them today, but torches that would have had a rag with oil on top of it. They get their torches and they get a little flask filled with oil and they go. Five of them grab their torches, but they don't have any oil because they weren't ready. And they all get up and they go. The groom is delayed, they fall asleep, he shows up, and the ones that didn't bring oil are in trouble. There may have been some residual oil at the top of this torch so they can light their torch for a few minutes, then they start to go out. The other girls won't help them because if they do, there won't be enough oil for everybody's lamp. So they say, you go buy some oil, come back. While they're gone, the groom comes, everybody goes to the party, and the five show up later, and they can't get in. And the most interesting thing is at the end of this parable, what does the groom say to them? He says, I I won't let you in. Why? Because I don't know you. I don't know you. And the issue seems to be that these five were not prepared. Why? I think the implication is because they didn't really believe he was going to come. So they didn't get their flasks of oil. They weren't ready because they didn't believe he was going to come. And in the context, I think what Jesus is is really saying is on that day, all that really is going to matter is do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? It's not going to matter. And Jesus talks about this throughout Matthew 25. It's really not going to matter that you may say, Jesus, I did some really good stuff in my life. I prophesied. I cast out demons. I gave to the poor. I did all of these good things. I went to church went to Breakaway. I was in every organization on campus that's Christian or has a fish attached to it. I did everything. What's going to matter is this. Do you know him? And there's only one way to know him. And that is through Jesus Christ. And by recognizing that it is only through Jesus Christ that you can have eternal life. By trusting in what he has provided that you can't, which is you are a sinner. Nothing you do is going to be good enough to earn you favor before God. Nothing you do. And, and my guess is that there, there may be a few of you in this room tonight, there probably are, who think that the stuff that you do will earn you salvation before God. I think what Jesus is saying is there's only one way in. That's through the bridegroom, through me. And so the implied question is, do you know me? Do you trust me? Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. So there may be some of you in here tonight that have never yet trusted in Jesus, that you are not trusting in him for eternal life. And so the first message, first application for you is this, that uh, tonight is your night. All you need to do is acknowledge that you have sinned against God. Jesus has paved the way. He died in your place and he rose again so that you can have eternal life, so God can forgive you. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. So the scripture says, know Jesus. That's the first way we prepare for eternity. For those who know him then, we're called to reflect him. And that's the message of really the rest of the New Testament in large measure. 
We know Jesus, yes, but then secondly, we remain patient and focused as we wait. For those who know Jesus, we're called to wait patiently, but then also remain focused and active as we wait. So this is not a complacent type of patience that says, I'm just going to sit here and wait for Jesus to come back. In fact, that, that happened to some in the early church. It still happens today. There are groups that will sit on a hillside and say, okay, we figure Jesus is going to come back any minute, so we're just going to check out, sit here, and wait. That's not the biblical picture of what we're called to do. Instead, we're patient for God to come. And yet in the meanwhile, we are focused on the things that God has called us to do. Primarily, what he's called us to do is to reflect the character of Jesus Christ, to serve him and to grow in Christ-likeness so that we can be qualified one day for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little bit. I'm going to give you charge of much. Look at Luke 19 and you see Jesus giving people reign over five cities, ten cities, based upon how they've served him in their life. So for the Christian, we have the opportunity to know Jesus well and then to reflect him to the world so others can come to his kingdom. Be patient yet focused. A couple of passages, James 5, 7 7 through 9. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So the idea is, just like a farmer, he plants and then he waits. He can't control the weather. He can't control whether the seeds come up. But there are things he does, right? He can water. He can fertilize. He can prepare for next year's harvest. There's things he does while he's waiting. He is patient, but he's also focused. And James says to these men and women who are suffering, you be patient, but also be focused. I read a book not too long ago that talked about a study that was done at a elite music school, and they studied violinists. And uh, what they did is the professors separated out for the researchers, they separated out the violinists into three categories. There were those that were at the top of their class that were probably destined to play for the New York Philharmonic or some very elite symphony. There were those that were kind of in the middle. They were just good. They would maybe play in a symphony professionally, but not at the highest levels. And then there were those at the bottom of their class at this elite school that they were, they were not, it's not that they were bad, but they were probably going to be a music teacher or something like that. They weren't going to be a professional violin player. And they studied what separates the ones up here from the ones down here. Is it innate talent? Uh, What is it? And here's what they found. The one thing that separated them, in fact, the only thing they could find that separated their skill level was how much they practiced. Isn't that interesting? The only thing. There were no people way up here who were just born able to play the violin. And there were no people down here who tried and tried and tried and tried, but couldn't ever get up there. Only thing that separated them was how much they practiced. The point is this. There was a discipline in the ones up here that they saw the goal and they said, I'm going to patiently and faithfully practice hour after hour after hour, day after day after day, because I see the end result. And that is very similar to the process of growing in Christlikeness. We look at the end goal and we say, God wants me to be like Jesus Christ and to reflect him. That is the goal of my life. And so I pray, even though prayer is hard, because through prayer, God conforms me into his character. I endure suffering with joy because God conforms me into the character of Christ. I serve others. I give 
I do the things that I do, not so I can be uh, just a good boy or girl, but because it is the way that God through his Holy Spirit transforms me and then makes me capable one day of being the kind of person who can reign alongside Jesus Christ when he comes in his kingdom. So when I am engaging in the task of becoming like Jesus Christ, I'm investing in eternity. And I'm storing up treasures for myself until that day when Jesus will evaluate my life. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And you see this single-minded focus all throughout Paul's letters that he says, I am keeping my eyes on this one prize. Go read Philippians 3 sometime. I'm keeping my eyes on this one prize. I want to be like Jesus Christ so that when I see him, I'll receive this reward. And here, well done, well done. And that's what Paul chases after. He's single-minded in his focus. This time of year, some of you have probably already watched the old Christmas movie, A Christmas Story. And uh, if you remember the uh, story, it's about a little boy named Ralphie back in maybe the 1930s, 1940s is when it's set. And uh, Ralphie wants one thing for Christmas. You guys know what it is? Anybody? Wow, nobody. Okay. You, okay, yeah, what is it? You, all right, you got it. The Red Rider BB gun, right? That's all he wants is the Red Rider BB gun. And uh, it has a sundial on it. And it, it's, it's just this amazing little BB gun that he wants. And he tells everybody about it. He tells his parents. Uh, he tells Santa Claus. He writes an essay about it for school. And everybody tells him the same thing. Everybody says what? You'll shoot your eye out, right? You'll shoot your eye out. Even Santa kicks him in the face, right? Pushes him down a slide. Says, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. His teacher gives him a C plus on his essay. And yet Ralphie is undeterred. He wants this. That's what it looks like to be single-minded. To be absolutely focused. And that's what the scripture calls us to. What is the thing that is your one thing? If you think, man, if I just could do this one thing, or I just had this one thing, then my life would be complete. What is it? There's a way to find out. Think about what you talk about most of the time. Think about how you spend your time. Think about how you spend your money. Go look at your bank account. What do you invest your time and your life in? If we're honest, for most of us, it isn't the kingdom of God. It's other stuff. Yet the reality is that there's a day coming when all that will matter is is what we invest in eternity. And I think a big danger for us, especially in, in a culture that, like we live in, where it seems like we kind of live in a Christian environment and everything uh, feels very Christian-y, the danger is we become complacent and we think, yeah, I, I'm safe, I'm okay. I don't need to push beyond my comfort zone. I don't need to push really hard to know Jesus, to chase after him. Yet that's what we're called to do, to make that, knowing him, reflecting him, our, our one thing. So we stay patient and yet focused. And then thirdly, stay sober-minded and pure. 
while we wait. This relates to the previous point, but specifically what this means is we don't uh, defile ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our hearts with things that would drag us away from knowing Jesus. So there's a positive element in which we run toward him. And then there's also this element in which we say, I'm not going to allow myself to be defiled by the things of the world, by the things that would keep me away from knowing Jesus as he's called me to know him. Let me show you a couple of passages that flesh this out. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Then Romans 13, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Right? The idea is this, that if we want to know Jesus and if we're waiting for him to come back, uh, the early church actually lived, and you can see that in both of these passages, they lived as if he could come any moment. They really believed that, that he could come any moment. And we're called to as well. And so in light of that, you don't have time for sexual immorality. You don't have time to fritter away your days simply trying to be entertained. You don't have time for drunkenness. And the real tragedy of immorality is not the damage it does to our reputations, although that's bad. It's not the damage it does to our families here and now, although that's terrible. The real tragedy is that it draws us away from the task we've really been called to do, which is to know Jesus Christ and learn how to represent him and to represent him to the world so more men and women will come into his kingdom. And the idea is you don't have time for that stuff anymore. There is an urgent day coming in which Jesus will judge the world and establish his kingdom on earth. And you and I will be evaluated. I have a good friend who, when his wife was pregnant with their second baby, they were living overseas in a third world country, and uh, he was sitting downstairs in their kind of townhome deal one day. They had a two-story home. He was sitting downstairs and he suddenly heard a thump upstairs and his wife hollered his name, John, get in here. And uh, so he got up and he ran up there and uh, she had gone into labor and when he walked in, uh, the baby was emerging from her body. It happened that fast. Uh, Now, she was actually a midwife and so uh, talked him through how to deliver his own baby said, you can do this, buddy, right? And so uh, they sat in there and he delivered his own child. Now, I'm sure it was a terrifying experience, but on the other hand, kind of cool, right? I mean, I did this, right? I, I delivered the baby. Now, as I thought about that story, though, I thought, you know, he's sitting downstairs, he's eating his lunch, wife calls his name. What if she calls him and he says, hold on, I got half a sandwich left and 30 rocks not over yet, right? <laughs> keeps eating, keeps watching it. Right, that's ridiculous, right? That'd be terrible. Right? Because there's something much, much more important going on. He doesn't have time for that. That's what Paul is talking about. Uh, some of you are, in a sense, right now, you're facing your own day of judgment. It's coming up very soon. Different kind of day of judgment, but finals are upon you. And uh, for many of you, you're feeling that tension because you got here in September, right? Or August, flowers were blooming and the sky was blue and you just thought, this is just wonderful, man. I can hang out with my friends. 
and go wherever I want to go. And I know I've got, you know, like 17,000 pages to read, but I've got till December, right? October comes, you got to get your Halloween costume ready or whatever, you know. November comes, you're making pumpkin pie. And all of a sudden, Thanksgiving's over and you round the corner and you go, oh no, right? Judgment day is here. And suddenly, you don't have time for any of that other stuff that you were spending your time on because the day is upon you and you take it seriously, don't you? So you're going to go back to your room tonight or later this week and you'll study and you'll study and as the time draws nearer, you'll study with more intensity. That is the image that the New Testament consistently gives us. Is the time is, is near. could happen right now. could happen tomorrow. We don't know when. But we are called to stay sober-minded, focused, and then pure. Because we don't have time to waste. And in the meanwhile, we invest in the things of eternity. Last thing that we're called to do, fourth thing here, is to share the gospel. Share the gospel. And this goes along with the others. But as we learn how to represent Jesus, then we move out into the world around us, into the community around us, and we share the message of what Jesus has done so that people can know him and enter into his kingdom. Second uh, Timothy 4, Paul says, I solemnly charge you, this is to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul says, even in the midst of an environment where everybody wants to hear what makes them happy, where they want their ears tickled, he says, you, Timothy, stay focused Fulfill your ministry and do the work of an evangelist. Reach out into your world and share this message that Jesus has come and has redeemed this world from sin and death and hell. And I wonder how often we really take that seriously and really recognize that the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news. And evangelism means to share the good news. The good news is that Jesus has saved us from eternal separation from God. And we have that message then that we can share with the world. If heaven and hell are objectively real places, not just places we've made up, not just places we talk about, if they're objectively real, then you and I are called to reach into our world and speak the truth to men and women, the good news, so they can know him. Think for a minute, what is the gospel that you find yourself preaching? What is the thing that you talk about a lot. It probably relates to whatever that one thing was we talked about earlier, right? For some of you, when you got into A&M, uh, that was your gospel, man, right? You, uh, you told all your friends, you put it on Facebook, maybe you called the local news, tried to get a story about yourself, you know. Uh, for some of you, it's going to be that day you get engaged, you'll put pictures out, you'll talk to everybody, and that's exciting. But let me ask this question, if the truth is that Jesus is returning, I wonder if we ought to shift our focus. I know the scripture says we ought to shift our focus. to Say what I'm going to proclaim with my mouth and with my life is that he's coming back. 
And there's a day of judgment coming. And yet the good news is, those who trust in him can escape the devastation of God's judgment through his love given in Jesus Christ. So that's what we're called to do. So as, as we close, I just want to ask you guys one question, and it's this. What can you and I do this week to become more heavenly-minded? To invest in the things of eternity. For some, it may be uh, that you need to make some big changes. It may be that you need to change the way you spend your time or your money. You may need to commit that I'm going to invest in knowing the Word of God so that I understand who God wants me to be so I can learn how to represent him. It may be that you need to say, I'm going to pull away from some form of entertainment or some relationship that is drawing me away from God or some behavior. Maybe that you need to step outside of your comfort zone and begin to pursue relationships with others who don't know Jesus. I know for each person in here, there is something that God would call you to do to begin to invest more this week in the things of eternity. So what I want to do as we close, just for a minute, if you've got a pen and paper or if you've got a phone where you can take notes, something like that, I just want you to ask two questions of yourself and write, write the answers down. All right, first of all, be honest. Right now, what is your one thing? What is the thing you focus on, think about, plan for more than anything else? Be honest. And then second, what is one step, one thing you can do this week to draw closer to God, and to become more kingdom-minded? What is one step you can take to invest in eternity? Let's just take a moment, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, you are gracious and loving and kind, and we know that in your mercy toward us, you gave us your Son. We know that he is on the verge of returning. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We know he's coming. So we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to invest in the things of eternity. Shake us from the complacency that often dominates our lives and allow us instead to pursue you with the same single-minded focus that we see in the apostles that we see, in those great men and women throughout history who have served you well. I pray, prepare us to be representatives of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Let us invest our time, our money, our energy, our resources in the things that matter to you. Father, we love you. I pray, be with each person as they study, as they prepare for finals this week. Pray even those things we would do with one eye on your kingdom. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.